0: Welcome, everyone. My guest today is lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about consumer credit stress and how that's affecting the housing market. Logan, welcome back to the podcast.
1: It is wonderful to be here, especially after the events yesterday that we had, uh, uh, providing information for everybody uh, in the real estate industry. And uh, I, I, I love it so much because a lot of the charts we show people, not a lot of people have seen them even if people have been in the industry for a very long time. And I think that's useful because we talk so much about housing credit and that'll be the discussion today. So people can have a a better idea of what to expect in the future.
0: No, you're, you're so right. So we have been at the national Hispanic organization of real estate associates, Um, their conference for the last couple of days in Monterey. It's been amazing. They've had people from all over California different chapters coming in, and you're right. like so they offered your your charts, the charts that you shared uh, as part of their you know like sign up for Nora membership and and we'll make sure you get these charts. And people who are on HW plus membership get those charts every week and obviously our our listeners here can uh, get to hear you talk about them. So that's amazing. let's talk about consumer credit. What is it? What's going on?
1: Yes. You you know, a lot of people are highlighting the increases in credit card delinquencies and auto loan delinquencies. And of course, student loan uh, debt payments are about to come back into vogue. And when we talk about credit stress, the one area that looks pretty clean still uh, is housing. And I think, you know, at this point, after all these rate hikes and so many people talking about recessions, how do we talk about housing? In this, in this light at this point in period. And I think there's the credit side and then there's the supply distribution side of housing. And one of the things that I've realized over the years that people have always forgot that housing in itself, we had massive credit stress for years, what we call the buildup of credit deterioration, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008. And during that period of time the credit availability index peaked kind of 2005 2006 period and it collapsed so one of the things i, I try to uh, talk about in this uh in this you know the nerd tour we're about to hit seven or eight different cities right now is that during 2000 or 2007 housing sales were booming supply was rising too so if you ever had a marketplace that had a risk of supply increasing in a very uh, big fashion. It's when you have a massive credit boom and supply increasing. Because when the credit deteriorates, right, when home sales collapse, and remember we talk about home sales in 2005, peaked at 7.26 million, then it took a few years to get down to 2008. During that period in time, we saw an increase in supply from 2005 to 2007 that deviated from the trend from 2000 to 2005. So that's that's different. And a lot of that is that the credit that was facilitating housing was noticeable, right? Uh, sales were booming back then. Now, not so much, right? Because we never had a credit boom. So when I always talk about, you know, I, I don't fundamentally believe the US could ever have a housing credit boom ever again. That's primarily based on the 2010 qualified mortgage rules. So when we do these purchase application charts, we always draw the black line from 2002 to 2005. When I do these uh, uh, updated uh, uh, video uh, um, on Instagram, I say, listen, number one, the market of 2002 to 2005 never happened. That's really big. So here we have the biggest home sale crash ever recorded in U.S. history in one year, six and a half million down to four million, right? Purchase application data, the last uh, uh, data line, we're back to 1995 levels. Total inventory is still near all-time lows. How is that even possible? Well, because the credit channels are different. So when we have a job loss recession, whenever that comes, the entire discussion that we're going to have around housing credit changes But the distribution of supply is going to be much different as well. We will focus on new listings data, forced equity sellers first, not like the supply that we saw increase from 2005 to 2009. I mean, think about it in this way. We just had the biggest crash in home sales. We're not even anywhere close to the four decade average of supply. And that explains why home prices are back at all time highs. So forced equity sellers are going to be people that lost their job and cannot get the income back. Now, I, I, I argue that the total housing costs for a lot of homeowners are very low. So even if one person was still working and the other person got unemployment benefits, they can manage that. Because what's going to happen right now is that so many people have such a low housing cost uh, um, that have been homeowners for a very long time. Boy, if you're giving that up. That means you're gonna to have to rent for a uh, higher for and for a lot of people the people that bought homes late in this cycle don't have that you know they have a, a mortgage rates are, are are higher for them but here forced equity sellers are going to be not foreclosures the foreclosure process right unlike that period in time because the credit data is so clean still 30 60 90 day lates near all-time lows the process of that distributing to supply is gonna take minimum, when I mean minimum, I'm like talking about the bare bones fastest possible way, nine to 12 months, 30 day late, 60 day late, 90 day late, NOD filing, right? The foreclosure process, it goes there. So jobless claims, yesterday, we saw this, we're recording this on Friday, multi-month low right now. So the labor market isn't breaking. It's getting less firm. So you need to see uh, jobless claims increase, and then you have to correlate it to the new listings data. And then the new listings data, then we have to work with purchase application data. There's a forward-looking housing economic model that has worked for many years. You just have to know where to look. So the credit cycle is so different. I mean, let alone 42% of homes don't even have a mortgage that the supply coming from this is going to be in two phases, forced equity sellers, and then the foreclosure supply, which would be 12 to 18 months from whenever the first recession. And let me tell you, a lot of things can happen in that 12 to 18 months uh, uh, during that process.
0: I think that's a great point because we think about, um, we saw how long it took, especially in judicial states, the foreclosure process can be years and years. I mean, and in that time, you might have, interest rates drop so that people can refinance, you might have, you know, more people jumping in and wanting to buy that house, you might, all, all sorts of things could happen. Um, and I, I haven't really thought about that before. But, you know, the fact that the process itself takes a long time, and we're in this very unique economic cycle, we might be somewhere different by the time some of that stuff comes to to fruition.
1: This is why, you know, when we did that housing bubble live debate, that's available for everyone, if they go to housing wire uh, website, they can they can see it live, What I'm trying to get people to to talk about is 4 million home sales, right? In 2008, existing home sales got as low as 3.77. But back then, you had massive supply, right? 2007 was the peak. So as demand was slowly rebounding, right, we had foreclosure supply. We had uh, three times more listings currently Back then. So the supply and demand imbalance was on the supply side and the demand side. So they, they were not correlating. It was about in 2012 when they crossed each other where monthly supply came back down. And that's when home prices naturally started to increase. Here it's a very unique situation. You have the best home loan profiles ever recorded in history. You have a labor uh, uh, demographic dynamics uh, that are, that are less. And this is why last November 9th was critical to everything is that you know, We've never had a, a, a test case run with mortgage rates above 7%. Could 6% mortgage rates stabilize demand? This is why I've always highlighted, and I, I try to teach economics in this way, if forward-looking data gets better, then you have to go with it. And what, what occurred is that back in November and December, everybody was so into the home price crash, they didn't read, Sarah, and what do we say reading is a good thing the history of human civilization has taught us that those that read have a benefit over those that don't because we don't burn books in this country anymore right we never burn books that was another country 1934 germany not us so now everyone gets to see this going in the future right so if demand is stable right or even rising and the inventory channels are still stable in this environment, can you have a major home price crash? Now, the downside to this is housing affordability is still very, you know, uh, uh, difficult. But when you get an influx of supply, right, and especially if they're distressed, then the variables change, right? That's why I always say that. Is it? Po- I ask everyone, is it possible going back 500 years, even going back to the Peloponnesian War, if demand is stable and inventory is low, is there any mathematical chance to have a price crash? Is there anything, even in a commodities industry? So you need that supply to increase. And because affordability is so bad, it's unlike you know back in 2008 where affordability was good, right? Home prices crashed, were crashing. Inventory was up, rates were falling. Here, such a different dynamic. Rates are high, inventory is low, affordability is bad. So uh, this is why tracking weekly data is so key. This is why tracking credit data is so key. Uh, um, And I don't know how many people are versed in tracking forward looking data, let alone housing economics, let alone credit data, uh, because everybody kept on saying that, you know, we're on the um, precipice of the dark abyss where everyone was going to sell their homes. Right. The whole stock trader mentality in 2021. Right. 2021 was the premise. Right. 2021, we had forbearance. We had three percent mortgage rates. Everybody that said mortgage uh, housing was rate Lockdown. Inventory is going to skyrocket in 2021 because mortgage rates are low. So forbearance, that, and then the Airbnb bust was actually a 2021 premise um, because uh, nobody was traveling. And so how are these Airbnb owners going to make their payments if nobody was traveling? So there's these hypothetical theories, but if the forward-looking data doesn't account for it and the credit data doesn't show the deterioration, it's hard. And hopefully this year, you know, uh, we show the active listings data. And of course, active listings did not get to the levels that I wanted to see, but I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged that, you know, the one benefit of high rates is we're slowly increasing, uh, uh, inventory, but the slope is so much small, slower. And, and that's because credit channels run inventory channels. So even with demand this low, you have people that are just sitting there saying, I'm not a stock trader. I'm not a person on Twitter. I have a very, very low total housing cost, not the rate, it's the total housing cost in relationship to my income. And if there's one thing that still today does not get enough attention, even though I repeated it time and time again, fixed debt cost, rising wages, that house cost becomes lower just from the the debt payment side. Your property taxes and insurance can increase, but it's just a different environment because we had the longest economic and job expansion ever recorded in history. We had the COVID, we had the COVID recovery. So the, the stock of homeowners are just in a very good spot. So if people go, why aren't people listing their homes? Well, credit channels have provided a shield for the American middle class. And that shield has prevented some of the uh, uh, inflationary pressures and aggressive rate hikes to deteriorate their quality of life. So it's the quality of life discussion that nobody wants to have because I just think not a lot of people are versed in the data.
0: So, you know, I wanted to bring up you you talk about uh, credit stress. Let's talk about the student loan payments coming due again, because that happens, I think, at the end of this month. And I I want your take on, like, how big of an impact is that going to have now? I think the interesting thing from your perspective, if you have a low rate, if you have a low housing cost right now because you own and you have that 30 year fixed at a low cost, you would have to, you know, what is the balance of like how bad would that payment have to be? Because to your point, if you sell, you're just going into a rental situation. I mean, it's it's not like, you know, and that's not like, oh, wow, r- 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 rent rent prices are, are so low. But how big of a of a hit to consumer credit is it when you look at those student loan payments coming back?
1: So we had the longest economic and job expansion ever recorded in history with a student loan crisis every seven minutes. We had people saying millennials will never buy homes. Millennials were the biggest buyers of homes for many years. In fact, the only reason millennials aren't the biggest buyers of homes right now is because mortgage rates went up and they finance 90% plus of their, of their uh, homes, especially if they're first time home buyers. So in that sense, Gen X over surpassed them on the percentage sides. And so did the baby boomers. So homeowners. We're qualified already with that payment. What's going to happen is disposable income for other things will come down. There's a group of people in this country that have not paid their student loan debts and they're not going to pay their student loan debts either. So they're still in that same camp. And then I think the homeowners in their their disposable income becomes less because they have to reaccelerate that payment. Like If you asked me how to fight inflation, the first thing I would tell you, you'd have to the fastest way to do it is either you put the student loan payments into the system. So you draw income out of the economy or you raise social security taxes on wage earners to, to get less income into the system. That's, that's the way to really defeat inflation. You know, if you do it with rate hikes, you know, in this environment, it's not maybe the most efficient way, but we see the growth rate of inflation falling down already without a job loss recession. Um, so, uh, I think on the economic side, it's more of an issue. But on the homeowner side, they've been do, they've been living that before COVID, right? So wages go up, cash flow gets better. They can handle that uh, uh, better than a renter. I think a renter that never were paying that uh, student loan that is not going to pay and they're still in that tough spot where – rental inflation, housing inflation goes up for them. Their wages really don't compensate. Then they have now payment rent. So it, it makes it harder for them. Uh, but people have to qualify for their uh, student loan debt payments. They're assuming that are going to come back online. Uh, but I think to, to the economy, you're taking less income out. It's not like we are, people are paying their student loan debts, the $50 billion or whatever the government gets. They're not distributing that to the economy to make a difference. Right. So, uh, Uh, On the economic side, I think it's a a legit hit to the economy. On the homeowner side, uh, they can manage it better. On renters, though, I think it's that's where the stress is. Where we're going to see the stress in credit card delinquencies, auto loans, our renters, especially if gas prices go higher, especially sectors of the economy that are still uh, shedding jobs, there's where you're going to see the stress. And then, assuming the job loss uh, recession happens... The Fed is kind of going to be old and slow and not really cutting fast enough or anything like that. There's where you can build up even more credit stress. But as of right now, like I always show at these uh, events, foreclosures and bankruptcies on the consumer side are near all-time lows. They're naturally going to increase back to pre-COVID trends, but it would take at least three to four years to build up to anything that we saw in 2008. So that, that that's, I mean, 2027, 2028, something to that nature but I, I I talk about how the 2005 bankruptcy reform laws and the 2010 QM laws are today still the unsung heroes of the US economy that nobody wants to give attention to because I don't think people even understand what they I mean there's some people that don't even know what I'm saying by when I say uh, 2010 QM laws qualified mortgage or even the 2005 uh, um, foreclosure I mean um, the bank the BK reform laws it's harder to file for bankruptcy, so people are like, okay. And the spending, the amount of credit that's been able to uh, get into the economy is much less than what it was. So this is why the last thirteen years, the credit data looks so much different than what it was from, let's say, nineteen ninety six to two thousand five, even two thousand five to twenty ten. Uh, the The construct, the the stock of homeowners are in so much better position because they were given the ability to have a house with a fixed debt payments as their wages rise. So their mortgage payment as a percentage of disposal income are still near all-time lows. Uh, Even their household liability debt payments are still near all-time lows. So different backdrop, different mindset, but we can run new credit channels, new economic cycles. Remember, I'm an economic cycle person first, housing second. So when it happens, we will adjust claims to credit data, to housing data, to new listings data, because that's how forward-looking models work, right? Everybody had a hypothetical theory in 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023. What, Sarah, have we seen in the data during that period of time is that new listings data has been trending at all-time lows. When we see credit stress, it will be so apparent in the new listings data. You will see straight vertical right? Because people go, okay, I got to sell, right? There's nothing I can do, you know? So uh, not there yet, but when it happens, we believe we'll be the first and we'll be the best in terms of guiding people in this environment. That's why we did the foreclosure fanatics uh, um, podcast in uh, in March, where I'm already finally seeing that the housing price crash people are throwing in the towel and finally saying, okay, we need a job loss recession. We need Americans to lose. This is how sick these people are now. They are literally rooting for people to lose their jobs because of some, again, and, and this is who they are. This is, there is a, 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 pack of hyenas in this country who have completely lost their minds and now are going to be rooting for. i even got into uh, a few of them. I said, listen, this guy's a correct. This guy is a commodities trader and he's basically saying, I want to see people lose their jobs because for some devotion to something. And this is the battle I cannot wait to have because that whole cycle is gonna be much different. And we're gonna teach people how to read credit cycles and housing cycles during a recession. And that's that's gonna be exciting in a sense that people are gonna gain that knowledge and they're gonna read and they're gonna learn and then they don't have to be manipulated by these people anymore. And uh, forward-looking data is key to this. And Forward-looking credit data is just as critical with the forward-looking uh, inventory data. And Everything revolves around the 10-year yield, mortgage rates, inventory channels, purchase application data. We put it all together. It's a nice equilibrium, an enchilada of data, and push it forward on everyone.
0: I love the enchilada of data concept. And of course, this is, we record this on Friday. You're about to get one of, it's about to be your favorite time of the week where you get the Altos research data that gives you a very unfair advantage of knowing what the inventory is across the country and what that means for the industry going forward. So we'll look forward to that um, housing market tracker when this comes out. As, as people are listening to this, that's already available. So um, go check that out. But Logan, thank you so much for being on today.